he's coming after me. And I just ran into my van and locked the door kind of as the door was closing, I was hitting that lock button. He punched my driver's side window. Hey gang, if you're listening to this right now, odds are you watch videos on the main channel and you've seen how important speed and accuracy are in a gunfight. That's why Active Self Protection recommends the Range Tech Shot Timer. It's the lowest cost shot timer on the market that we're aware of. Bluetooth compatible with any Android or iOS device. More features than any other shot timer. You can store all your data on the cloud for free. Native integration with practice score and a visual light-based go signal. Visit them at rangetechtimer.com and tell them your friends at the Active Self Protection Podcast sent you. Alrighty, gang. Welcome back to the Active Self Protection Podcast. I am your host, Mike Williver, and I am... Your favorite former Fed with us today, a new friend of mine. Her name is Kendra Hook. She hails from the uh, originally from California. Boo! But now she lives in northern Arizona. Yay! She is a single mom of one rambunctious boy, and she is a patient care technician at a local uh, healthcare facility. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Kendra, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. So she's hiding. You folks, you should know this. It's not a video podcast. You can't tell. She's hiding in her car. <laughs> from her kid who's who is she there's no way she could do this with in the same room with that rambunctious five-year-old so she's hiding in the car she has an eye on don't know folks it's okay nobody calls yes. cps kendra's doing a fine job so talk to us about your childhood it's interesting because the, the person with whom you had a dispute and an incident was a close family member um so it's kind of a weird question in this case but did you grow up um you grew up in the la area or no is that where you just came from more recently I know I did grow up in the LA area of San Fernando Valley, um, to be a little more specific. And yes, um, the, the person that was involved that I found myself, uh, defending myself from, um, was someone that I did grow up with very closely in the home. Okay. Did you, did you at any point between childhood and now prior to this incident, give uh, self-defense, a lot of thought were you a watcher of the channel hey do you take in any firearms classes or self-defense or anything like that um yes 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 sort of okay <laughs> so um i i grew up with firearms in the home my dad had a revolver and a couple of hunting rifles mm-hmm. and so um i learned very young that guns were not scary um we were my brother and I were raised with the universal um, gun safety rules. Um, we, my brother and I actually both took martial arts for a very, very short time um, in like junior high and high school. And so it was always something that we were aware of, but we didn't necessarily have a ton of practice in it. And it wasn't, uh, it, it's not something we ate slept and breathed necessarily we were just really aware that it was super important i got you all right perfect uh talk to me really quick about your job my sister um works at a hospital out in the maryland area so what exactly is a patient care tech and what is it you do uh when you're on the job a patient care tech does the same work as a cna a certified nurse assistant um a cna went to school for the work whereas a patient care tech like myself was trained on the job. Hmm. Um, I do have a background in surgical technology, so used to assistant surgery. So um, it wasn't um, the worst thing in the world for me to to kind of transfer over into that area and that side of patient care. So not a big leap. Yeah, not a huge leap. 
I got you. So I work on the med surge floors as well as, um, which is just kind of where you get admitted. If you go into the ER and they want to hang on to you for a little bit and observe you and maybe provide some intervention. Um, I usually work on the med, sh- med surge floors, but I have been uh, floated over to the emergency department, psych, as well as ICU. So you've seen, so. you've seen a few things in, in your time, I'd imagine. A few, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the stories I hear from my sister are absolutely insane. And, you know, having been in a bunch of emergency rooms in a law enforcement context. So, yeah, I have, I have some idea of what that's like. So let's uh, yes. let's discuss your incident. You wrote to me and, and talked about it. And I don't, you weren't even writing to be mm-hmm. on the show. You were just writing to say thank you to the folks, the good people at Active Self-Protection for kind of giving you a little bit of uh, information, maybe a little bit of advantage and awareness uh, during the incident that maybe helped you. So talk to us about yeah. what happened. I know it can't be easy to talk about, but talk to us about what happened and about how long ago it was and just kind of walk us through that. Okay. So... Um, so yeah, I I mean, after it all happened, I decided to write in, um, I kind of did a little decompression with my uncle on the phone, uncle Bob. Um, but I said, I had to write into you guys to say, Hey, you, you really made a huge difference. It could have gone a lot different, uh, but it didn't. And this was actually pretty recently. It was only about a month and a half ago on September 15th. Mm -hmm. And I was, um, I work the night shifts. I work 6 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. It, it, it sucks. Yeah, uh, I, I know. <laughs> so I'm, I, I find myself chasing sleep a lot. I'm usually really, really tired. I had worked the night before. Um, so I got up in the afternoon. I picked my son up from school <clears throat> and we stayed home for a bit. And, you know, I just remembered I had some errands to run. So we got in the car and um, about two blocks down the road, I realized I walked out of the house without any of my tools. Um, I do um, I do have a firearm, um, a couple. I do have, I do carry knives. I carry like a Coupaton, you know, it's pepper spray. I use palm pepper spray, actually. A little, so, a little uh, something for everybody is what you're carrying, basically. A little something for everybody. Right. A few little, you know, uh, <laughs> a few things going on. So right. I realized I had walked out without any of my tools. And after watching, binge watching Active Self-Protection for about the, the last year and a half, maybe two years, it's been something that I've learned is just so very important. And they're so easy to carry. Uh, it's silly not to mm-hmm. is how I personally feel about it for me and for uh, the people around me. And so I realized I was like, Man, I left without any of my tools. Um, and I thought, you know what? I was just so tired. I was like, I'm not going back. I'm sure, sh- you know, everything's going to be fine. Nothing's going to happen. I'll just make sure I'm really, really aware. And I'm driving down the road and <clears throat> I get to a stop sign and I'm getting ready to make a turn. And I see a gentleman that is uh, broken down on the side of the road. He's driving a large truck and he's towing uh, like a, like an RV, a fifth wheel, something like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I'm one to like stop and help if I'm able to, if I feel safe to do so. Uh, I am not a mechanic. So he, I noticed he had a phone. That is really all I could do to help in that situation. So seeing that he had a phone and he had access to help, I kept going. Um, 
got my errands done, came back and getting ready to make that turn back home. And I noticed that there was another person out helping him trying to figure out what was wrong with his vehicle. And I remember thinking, that's so cool. I'm so glad someone stopped to help him. And I uh, made the turn and I noticed uh, actually it was my dad. My dad's truck pulled over on the side of the road. I was like, oh, that was my dad. Okay. Um, And I had remembered, I just, I, I got this sinking feeling. I had talked to my dad the night before on the phone and um, he, uh, he had been drinking very, very heavily. Um, It was his birthday. I had called to wish him happy birthday and he was not happy about turning another year older. And it's a, you know, that's, that's, we were raised in an alcoholic home. One parent, my dad was, uh, has pretty much always been an alcoholic. He was sober for several years and then he started back up again. Um, and so I just had this sinking feeling because it was late at night when I was on the phone with him and I knew that he was either hungover or that he was still drinking. And I was concerned for his safety. Um, I was, you know, wasn't real sure like how his interaction with this other gentleman, a stranger was going. And I just had this feeling I had to stop and check it out. Mm -hmm. And so I pulled over and, and I got out and I said, Hey dad. And he goes, Hey, and the minute I saw him, the minute he started talking, I knew that he was just trashed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay. Um, and I don't, uh, my dad and I didn't have a relationship for a long time because of his drinking. I, um, I don't like to interact with him when he's in that state. And so I turned, I was like, all right, well, uh, I got to get back home. And I turned and I just kind of bailed. I got out of there and I got about two blocks and I still had this, this sinking feeling, this gut feeling. It was, it was just bad. It was just bad. And so I realized his truck was facing like he was going out, not like he was coming in. And I immediately, like, I immediately thought, my working in the medical field, I see terrible accidents. I see all kinds of stuff. And, and anyone that's in any kind of, whether it's first responder or some kind of responder, we see some really terrible things. And I, I felt incredibly uncomfortable um, letting someone drive while they were under the influence, knowing they could potentially hurt themselves or others, sure. you know, up to and including death. And I just went, oh, man. and so I turned around and I went back and, um, and the, my dad and this gentleman's exchange was done. And I put my, my arms around him, kind of like his shoulders. And I said, Hey, have you been drinking dad? He goes, yeah, I have. I'm like, okay. I was like, why don't you get in my van? I'll take you home. And he had his dog in the truck with him and everything. And I was like, I'll take you and the dog home and I'll get your truck back. And immediately he got incredibly angry and he goes, no. I went, Ooh, okay. And, and I was like, I'm like, look, it's not safe for you to be driving while you're drinking. It's, it's not safe for anyone. I'm not okay with it. You go ahead. I was like, look, I'm like, okay, where, where are you wanting to go? And he was like, oh, I need cigarettes. I'm like, cool. I'll take you to get cigarettes. No problem. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I just want you to be safe. I want everyone else to be safe. 
go ahead and get in my van. And he goes, no, I'm not going with you. And his, his tone instantaneously was uh, what I remembered as a kid. Mm. And it, it was not, there are not happy memories there um, for a lot of that. Sure. So, um, and I was like, look, uh, this is, I'm not giving you an option. You can't be out like this. You need to get in so that I can get you home safe. This is not a discussion that we're having. I'm telling you what needs to happen right now. Mm-hmm. And and then the yelling and the screaming and the cussing and the name calling started. And um, so I went, I quickly walked over to his truck. I grabbed his keys and I showed him that I had his keys. So he wasn't worrying where his keys were. And I was like, hey, I have your keys. You need to figure it out then because mm-hmm. you're not driving. Right. And so suddenly he was able to walk just fine again. And he took off and he came after me. And it it did surprise me. Um, I looked back and <clears throat> the only way I can describe it, it's it's hard to say like, cause this is my dad. Right. So it's, it's hard to relay knowing so many people are going to hear this, but I do think it's important. The amount of hatred he had for me in his eyes was incredibly unnerving. And it's not something that I've ever seen before. Okay. That was, that was going to be my next question was, has this, has he, has he accosted you like that before? And had you, had he acted this specific way previously, or was this all new to you? Not this severely. Okay. Um, I'd never seen him hate me like that before. Um, he never, he would, uh, when I was little, he would score up to me and flinch just to make me flinch. He was very much into like intimidation and control. So he used to do what he could to let me think that he was going to come after me, but he never actually did. Not like that. So this was this was a whole other level. Okay. This was a whole other level. Is as he's as he's running towards you, is he saying anything? Do you remember? Give me my keys, um, cussing, name calling, all the things that we would have to bleep out. Right. Okay. Yeah. So what did you do in response? In Obviously, front of my son. Yeah. In front of my son. That's that is the worst. Um, let me just yeah. uh, throw in throw in something for our audience here. I grew up in a uh, in a household with a very very abusive alcoholic mother, and it took me a long time to forgive her. She's passed away. A long time to forgive mm-hmm. her for all the things that went down with me and my uh, my older brothers especially. But the things that we had to see as kids um, was unbelievable uh, and unacceptable. So. Uh, I do commend you for being willing to come on and talk about this because yeah, there is, there is at least one person who's going to hear this show and they're going to go, okay, it's not just me. I'm not the only one that's been through this. That's happened more than once with other episodes. So I really appreciate you coming on. So he, he is, he is coming after you. What did you do in response? He's coming after me and I just ran into my van and locked the door kind of as the door was closing, I was hitting that lock button. And he got to the door and, um, and he's yelling and screaming and name calling still. And he's pointing at me and he's saying, give me my keys, give me my keys. And I just ignored him. Um, he punched my driver's side window and, um, you know, I, I don't want to make this sound more dramatic than it was like, this wasn't like some big windup that he had on him. 
but it was hard enough that I thought, Oh, um, is this going to break? Is it going to crack? What, you sure. know, it stopped me for a second, but he punched my window. He backhanded my windshield and flipped me off. And, um, and then he was just standing there, like staring me down. Um, and it was, and it's something I recognized from the last 42 years of my life. Mm -hmm. That was, that's his thing is an attempt at fear and intimidation. And he's usually pretty successful at it. Um, and it did rattle me. It did. And, and I hate that it did. I hate that it did, but I mean, it's true. It did. Sure. It took me, it took me a minute to figure out what phone number to dial. Um, and, uh, I had a big old surge of adrenaline because it's not just me. My little boy was with me sure. and I knew that he was seeing his papa act like this towards his mom. And I did not, um, I didn't want him to see that. I didn't want him to have this memory. And, um, it's, uh, it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It sucked. No, um, fine. so anyway, um, I was, the other thing that I really hate about my reaction is that, um, the first person I called actually was my mom and, and I, and I called, um, and I was thinking like, okay, is, th are there any tricks that she has up her sleeve for trying to calm him down? Because when we were, when my brother and I were growing up, of course, she's the one that had to deal with him on this level, not us. And, and so, you know, I called her, I was like, do you have any tricks up your sleeve for this? And she goes, nope. And I was like, I'm like, if you don't, I'm calling the cops. She goes, call them. And wow. I thought, crap. And again, if I'm really being honest, I wasn't just calling to de-escalate. I was calling for permission. I am a 42-year-old woman, grown woman, who's raising another human being. And I called to ask for permission mm. because no one ever called the cops on him. We just dealt with his anger. We, I mean, I mean I'm kind of getting fired up about it. We dealt with his crap. Because eventually it would stop. And we just crossed our fingers every single time because we thought, well, hopefully it stops this time too. And I started standing up for myself with him when I was about 11 years old. And every single time that I did, it had to be measured. And I always thought he was just going to beat the living you know what out of me. What, what was your dad like when he's not drinking? Huh? What is he like when he's not drinking? Um, not dissimilar, mm -hmm. but under control. I remember, I mean, I remember, um, I remember thinking again, he was sober for, for quite a few years and like a decade plus maybe. And I remember thinking, wow, he's a huge jerk when he's sober too. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think both, so, most people um, expect the answer to be always oh, a total sweetheart, you know, when he's not drinking, but that not the, not the case with, not the case with your dad. Okay. Fair enough. He's, he's a sweetheart for longer when he's not drinking, hmm. but he, he's got a temper. He's got his, I mean, quite honestly, he's got his own, um, past traumas that are totally unprocessed. Yeah. That, um, yeah, yeah, that he lives in. Yeah, so, I was going to say uh, that that's almost certainly always the case, you know, with someone who has a substance abuse problem and and a 
uh, is an angry person for no apparent reason all the time. It's it's almost always a learned behavior. The alcoholism yeah. might not be a learned behavior. That's more likely just a genetic thing that people either have it or they don't. But the other stuff was learned. Yeah. Uh, none of that makes it okay. You know, his past trauma is his past trauma. So it doesn't make it okay for him to treat anyone that way, least of all his kids and least of all to, for his little five-year-old grandbaby to, to see what happens. So I, I want you to know that I heard everything you just said. And I want you to know that uh, I'm proud of you, first of all, for recognizing the permission thing. That's something I realized at about your age, so for me about 10 years ago, where somebody goes, why are you why are you asking this question, you know, about a thing? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know. They're like, you're you're a grown man, you know, make make your own decision. So good for you for recognizing that and saying it out loud. The the part that is that adds like another layer of awkwardness is uh, my dad is my neighbor. He lives in the apartment right next to me, our oh, living boy. room share wall. And I'm sitting in my car outside and he just walked out. So I had to roll up my, my window because obviously I have not shared with him that I'm doing this. Sure. He okay. may eventually hear it. Who knows? So yeah, who sorry. Knows. So just <laughs> there's back... another layer of weird. Yeah. No kidding. I didn't know that. That's, that's unfortunate. Uh, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. I think so. It, it, it's okay. this point in the story. He's, he's at the window. He's yelling. He's screaming. He's backhanding your windshield. Mm-hmm. Um, so you eventually did call the police. Did, did it occur to you to leave I did talk- and then call the police or, or how did that, how did that go down? It did. It did occur to me. And I thought like, I need to get out of here. But my, my other concern was he was totally enraged. And, um, I, I thought like, what is he going to do? Is he going to take off like walking down this stretch of road? It's a, it's a two lane road. And, it's um, it kind of cuts through the middle of town and there's um, a good at least couple, three miles where there are no stop signs, no signals. So traffic tends to be fast, faster than what law enforcement would suggest. Right. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> and so I was concerned about him, you know, and it's interesting, like even though he's coming at me like this and it's clearly wildly inappropriate to say the least. You know, I'm still where he's my dad. I still, I don't want anyone to get hurt. I just don't. It doesn't matter what they're doing. I just don't want anyone to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And so I was concerned that he would start walking somewhere clearly not in a, a healthy frame of mind and really get hurt. So I stayed to keep an eye on him. So you call 911. You tell the police what's happening. Is he still banging on your window as, as you're talking to the dispatcher? He, at that point, he is staring me down. He's standing right at my driver's side window. He's staring me down and he's saying, go ahead, call him, call him. And I'm ignoring him. Um, or I'm at least trying to look like I'm ignoring him. I'm extremely aware of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and at one point he walked, uh, was parked behind his truck. He walked back to his truck. And he lit up what was one of his last cigarettes in the pack. And um, and the dispatcher, she was wonderful. And she said, I want you to tell me everything that he's doing as, as it's happening. And I said, okay. And I said, and I told her, he just walked back to his truck. He lit up his cigarette. And she's like, okay. So he's, he's I said, he's a few feet away from us. And she said, okay. Um, and then he started walking back. And my son from his car seat yells, no, 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 which absolutely wrecked me. 
And, um, and I, I haven't heard the 911 tape yet. I'm still working on getting it, but, um, I, I have a feeling she may have overheard that. And she said, okay, we're getting multiple units to you now. Mm. Something to that effect. And, um, and, and she's like, what's going on? I said, he's walking back and she can hear it. Well, you can hear me you know, trying to comfort my son. I'm like, don't worry, buddy. It's okay. Nothing. I'm not going to let anything happen. We're safe right here. And I'm thinking as I'm saying that, I'm like, man, I better be able to back that up. Mm. Absolutely. You know, it was, that's a big moment for, you know, such a young child to be in a scary situation, seeing some level of violence. I know that so many people and so many kids have seen so much more intense and so much quote unquote worse. Um, but nonetheless, he's never seen anything like this. And, um, and I was hoping to skate by that in his childhood, but you know, here we sit Hmm. anyway. Um, and I'm like, you know what, we're going to be okay. We're safe right here. He's not going to do anything. And I had made that decision at that time. Like, you know, we always hear, you know, on the channel, like, you know, we have, we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision. And I think that in any self-defense scenario, there's a series of points in the scenario where we have to make very clear decisions. And we kind of have that, that moment, that's our go button. And that was one of those decisions I make. I'm hearing the fear in my son. It's now very, very real. I can't be in denial about it. If it gets, if it escalates anymore, if he, if he hits my window one more time, if he flinches at me one more time, that's now when I'm leaving. Okay. And, you know, so, um, and I was like, don't, don't worry. We'll be okay. Um, each other until the police were there and I and I made sure I waited until one officer was completely out of his car before I opened my door. Mm. Um, I wanted to make sure that there was that I that I had adequate backup. Right. You know what I mean? Um and at that point it was nine minutes. Wow. Um we're a small town um but stuff happens everywhere and law enforcement's busy. So it was a, it was nine minutes from the time I called, um, nine one one until the time, um, that the units showed up. Yeah. And that's an eternity when you're under stress in a situation like that. Two minutes is an eternity. So, uh, yes. yeah, I can imagine nine minutes seemed like a very long time. So what do the police do yeah. once they get there? Uh, they were wonderful. Um, another, another layer. I really, kind of, well, I really hesitated on whether or not I was going to mention it, but, um, my dad actually used to be a police officer. Okay. Um, and so I, my brother and I were raised to be extremely respectful, like to us, the police are the cavalry, and, you know, in, in every field, there are the excellent ones, the, the ones that are, it's kind of neutral, like they do the job. And then the ones that, uh, no one's sad when they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, these guys were amazing. Um, they were the cavalry. I was I was so glad to see them. Um, when we got there, as soon as the first officer came out and took a couple steps away from his vehicle, 
my dad started walking up to him. Um, those are his brothers, right? And so I got out of my van and I waved and, um, and there were, I think there were a total of five, maybe six officers that responded. And I remember initially being surprised. I was like, whoa, that's a lot. But when I realized that it wasn't just a drunk guy causing a ruckus, there was like a single mom with her five-year-old mm-hmm. that was scared and locked in a van. Yep. So um, they just, they were, they were nice and respectful to my dad. And I let them know, I was like, just so you guys know, one of the layers of something you're going to deal with with him is he used to be an officer. Mm-hmm. And they asked me what department he used to work for. I told them. And, um, and I said, so this is going to be really, really hard for, for him. Um, it's, it's just a layer, just be aware. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they said, okay, thank you. And they just asked me, you know, a series of questions. He was like, okay, what happened? And I let him know everything that I could. Um, he asked me, he said, now, when you went to take the keys out of the ignition, he said, was the truck running? And I realized I'm like, oh, I don't remember. And then I, and then I realized why he was asking. I went, yep. oh, okay. And he, and he goes, I, and I'm like, it's, it's okay. And I said, um, I didn't hear the truck running, but I had to turn the keys toward me in order to get them out of the, the ignition. So I'm pretty sure it was running. And for those who don't know, there, the officer was trying to establish um, one of the elements of the crime of driving under the influence of uh, alcohol. So that's that's why. Had the had the truck yeah. been parked, he and, the, and her dad made a statement saying he had been driving, they'd have nothing to go on as far as arresting him for that. So that's why he asked that question. So turns out you had to turn the key back to get the key out of the ignition. Therefore, it was either running or had been running. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, and I realized why he was asking, and I just sank. I went, "Oh man!" And I'm like, "Okay." And so, again, here's this really interesting and terrible thing about essentially an abusive parent, abusive situation, a parent-child relationship of that nature. Is this terrible thing is going on, and I'm still worried about protecting my dad Mm -hmm. because he's my dad, right? And, um, and so he, you know, the officer also asked, um, basically it was, I forgot exactly how he phrased it. He goes, how scared were you? And he was like, did you, did you really think that he was going to like come after you and hurt you? And it, um, the way I'm saying it, it was, he didn't say it in a demeaning way. He wanted to understand where I was at and what I was experiencing and he's like, you know, did you feel like he was really going to hurt you right. or your son? Or did you, um, you know, did you just realize that he's really, really mad? And I said, I, uh, I said he was pretty angry. And I said, I was pretty nervous. Mm. And I, you know, I, I still was even trying to, I wanted to get my point across, but still edit. You know, I didn't want to have like all these charges thrown at my dad, even though his decision, his consequences. Then that's one of the reasons I wrote into you and John is I'm like, you know what? There's no way that I'm the only one in this world, like you said, that's experiencing this. And it was a shock to me um, that I was still willing to protect him to a certain degree. 
Yeah, that's that's fairly common in in, pe- in people in those kinds of relationships. That that's part of the dysfunction um, in my mm-hmm. in my history and in my opinion is that you know when my mom would uh, get drunk and do really really bad things, you know, if the police got called, I'd be like, no, 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 that's my mom. You know, that's just sort of human nature. And the longer that relationship goes on, and the longer that abusive part of the relationship goes on, the harder it gets to extricate yourself from it. So. Again, yeah. uh, kudos to you for being willing to come on and, and discuss this. So did he end up getting arrested? He did. He was arrested and charged with a DUI. Mm-hmm. Um, his license is suspended. Uh, there is no relationship there anymore, even though he is my very close next door neighbor. Um, and any information that I have about it since that day has been from my mom. Um, and you know, I had to, the, the officers asked me if I was going to be willing to pick him up after they had processed him because they knew that they were going to release him. Like I, it's a small town here. So, uh, they were going to release him in like an hour, hour and a half. And I was like, oh yeah, I don't have a problem picking him up. And later on I thought it's, it's, it's just one, one more pieces of that of that dysfunction. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, there's no way he's going to pull anything with me after this. And he didn't physically, uh, but there were some words exchanged and we can talk more about that later if you want. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah, so uh, he did get arrested on a DUI. His license is suspended. And from what I understand, I mean, if he hasn't already done, done it, there's a, a second hearing that he needs to, to go to. Okay. So, so yeah. let me ask you this to the person out there listening right now who is maybe in, in somewhere a- along the, uh, the abusive dysfunctional family continuum. Maybe they're not where you are yet. Who's listening and, and wondering, uh, what they might do. What suggestion, what advice can you give someone who hasn't gotten to your point yet with a loved one, be it a, a parent, a child, a spouse, a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, um, what would you say to that person if they called you for advice right now? Well, what would you do or, or say if it was your best friend or a significant other? And treat yourself, defend yourself the way you would defend a best friend. I like it. So ha- you, you had said earlier that uh, at least in part, watching active self-protection uh, kind of gave you a, a mindset. Could you talk just a little bit about what you mean by that? Because I'm sure people are kind of probably wondering exactly what it was you saw or heard that maybe prepared you and got you in a position where you reacted appropriately. Oh, yeah. It's, um, you know, you guys talk about it all the time on on the channel. It's the, those mental reps, those mental repetitions. Um, you know, nobody like every single video, every single call, every single scenario, there's not one person that's expecting it. Sometimes the perpetrator isn't even expecting it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my I, I'm quite confident my dad had no knowledge, no intention of coming at me like he was going to beat the living you know what out of me in the middle of the street in front of my son mm-hmm. when he woke up that morning. Um, sometimes people do plan these things. I don't think that that happened. Um, but you know, the defender, 
on on each of these scenarios that you guys um you know analyze and break down so well for us none of them know that it's going to happen in that moment like you guys said the the bad guy the planner the the whatever you know he or she gets to say they set the date and the time mm-hmm. we don't right um and so seeing even just seeing that 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 theme replay over and over like i said i binge watch you guys like crazy i um i'm a single mom i don't have ample time to run out and take a ton of self-defense classes so i i rely heavily on those mental reps and you know going uh, we've heard a lot of people say that it sounds really paranoid i think it's um it's a a type of preparedness going through life um going through daily life what would I do if, what would I do when? If this, and I if actually, this then, yeah, if this, then what? Yeah. If this, then what? And going a step further, what are the contingencies? You know, my, my plan would, might be this, but what if I, what if I can't access my firearm? What if, um, what if I can't get to my knife in time? Right. What if, you know, what if someone goes to my child? first guess what i'm not going for a weapon i'm going for my kid and then i'm gonna have to figure out what i'm gonna do on the fly so that's you know those are the content excuse me the contingencies to plan for um you know hearing people you know hearing like this this podcast is so phenomenal because you get to hear what was going on um in the mind and uh, of the person that was, you know, being attacked in, in the mind of the defender. And you start to understand um, how, how the human brain works and how different people and different personalities, you know, it, is it happening when someone is exhausted and having just gotten off of a night shift a few hours before? Is it happening late at night when someone's waking up at three o'clock in the morning, someone beating down their door, mm-hmm. you know, are they wide awake? Are they bright and bushy tailed? Have they just had a cup of coffee? And you get to, um, you get to have all these scenarios and take in all these mental reps and just hearing different people's stories. I can honestly say that every, every scenario, um, especially like hearing people on the podcast, every person's, self-defense self-protection encounter has played a part in my preparedness of Mm. how I protect and defend myself and my son and anybody else that's around us down to what I carry, how I carry and when it's a really long answer, but I hope that clears that up. That's why there's, there's no time limit on this show. There is on Gutowski because he'll talk all day, but for the guests um, (laughs) there, there's, there's no time limit. Now, before we hit the record button early, you said you had some notes. I want to give you a moment here to just check those notes and make sure there's nothing that you wanted to talk about that we left out because this week is the busiest week I've had since we started the podcast. As far as interviews goes, I've got a whole bunch lined up and I got one lined up in about 15 minutes. So yeah, there is a time limit actually. Let me take that back. (laughs) I, I, you know, one of the, when I was writing you and John, I thought to myself, um, I, there were, I feel like there are just a couple aspects to the story that are pretty unique. One, I have known the person that came after me for 42 years. Right. Um, you know, uh, 
also, I am, it's something that cannot be said enough. I did not have any of my tools on me. Nothing, nothing. I had my keys and that was it. Um, and this thing that is not something that I would have seen coming from a mile away on that day happened the one time I did not have my tools with me guys for everyone that's listening, bring your dang tools with you everywhere you go. And I remembered it two blocks down the road and I made a conscious decision to not turn around because quote unquote, everything would probably be fine. Mm -hmm. And much to my surprise and chagrin, it was not now what, and then I thought, what would I have used at that time? I would have doused him with, with palm so fast. Mm -hmm. However, the concerning part about that is while that was, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, what, what is that phrase you guys use? Like the Monday morning quarterback. Yeah. Uh (laughs) I'm Monday morning. I'm Monday morning quarterbacking myself now. Um, Shout out to all the overthinkers out there. You're yeah. a good company. <laughs> um, I, while this whole thing was going on, he came after me and he swiped at me. He physically tried to grab me. Mm-hmm. As far as I remember, he physically tried to grab me. Not once in this entire encounter did I ever think, man, I wish I had my tools. I wish I had my OC spray. I wish I had my this or my that. Not once did I ever even think about my tools. Why? Because while this was a, a whole other level than I'd ever experienced with him before, it was still along the same vein of what I grew up with. Hmm. And it is, I, I think it is a really messed up type of um, normalcy bias, which is another term like that, you know, you hear on the channel a lot. Yeah, and, and the, I guess the question then, Kendra, is what's normal? What's normal to someone who's been conditioned to be around this there since they were born? So your normal right. is not anyone else's normal. I was in rough shape a few years ago. I went to see my doctor, my GP, and she goes, how do you feel? And I said, I feel pretty good. And and I'll bleep this out myself. She goes, no, you feel like shit, and you just don't know it because you feel like shit all the time, every day, all day long. Mm-hmm. And she was right. I needed to make some changes. So that normalcy bias yeah. uh, what what's normal for you may not be normal for anyone else uh, or not in a similar position to you Kendra that actually is our that actually is our time um I hate to do it but I have someone else to talk to you in nine minutes so I gotta let you go this is this has been a wonderful uh discussion I think this is a great and I talked to John about this before we uh scheduled the interview and he agreed and Stephanie agreed what a great episode because this is applicable to so many more people than you probably think it is uh this is a very very common problem in families and uh, your willingness to come on and talk about it that you know I, I think the word bravery is tossed around a little bit too cavalierly in our in our time but i think it was very brave of you to come on and almost certainly help someone else uh and if i'm ever up in northern arizona i'll look you up and me Please you do. and yes. the, the lovely and fetching mrs Bulliver and i will join you for coffee or something and uh, i love it all right it. kendra huck thank you so much Okay, gang, the main interview is over, and you know what that means. It's time once again for The Gutowski Files, starring Stephen Gutowski. He is the founder of TheReload.com and the host of the weekly Reload podcast, which you can find on all your finer podcast outlets and on YouTube. If you go to the YouTube channel, you uh, subscribe to that, where you get 
full shows and you get snippets so you can just look at uh, browse around and see what's interest you and then check that out too Stephen, welcome hey thanks for having me so you are uh you are from the philadelphia area originally and as Correct. of the recording of this your phillies are going into game three tonight or no tomorrow yeah. No. yeah 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 game three and uh and your your eagles are undefeated and as a as a native of washington dc i'm not happy about that but i'm happy for you my friend <laughs> thank you yeah, it's a great time to be a Philly fan, I and, say that much. Uh, although they are going to play at the same time on Thursday night, uh, which is pretty annoying. I don't know why they can't move that game. If anyone from MLB is listening <laughs> that schedules these things, please move the Phillies game up yeah. to 5 o'clock. That yeah, and, and it's, as we were saying, it's it's Houston-Philly times two Thursday night. So this will be, if you're listening to this when it comes out, it'll be last night. So you'll know how this, how these games ended up. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an interesting decision. Um this week, we are discussing uh, the NRA's funding of uh, $1.1 million in campaign ads uh, in several swing states. This comes on the heels of last week's sit-down with Stephen, where we talked about uh, every town uh, and their push into s- uh, some state races and issues other than gun control. So I, I wonder if these two are related, but I'll, I'll let you talk about that, Stephen. What are your thoughts? Yeah, certainly. I mean, these are dueling you know, ads that you're seeing out there among the gun groups, uh, they're going back and forth in a lot of the same races. The NRA in particular is focused almost exclusively on the Senate and some of the major battleground races in the Senate that's going to determine you know, which party holds control of that House of Congress. And they're, so they're spending in six different races, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Nevada, North Carolina, Georgia, and Arizona, mm-hmm. uh, where you are out there in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And so that's where they're really focused a lot of their money and this, the NRA's strategy has also been a bit different from the gun control groups in a couple of ways. They're both spending a lot of money. The NRA is still outpacing the gun control groups, you know, every town Giffords and and Brady combined is still a little bit less than what the NRA is spending. Well, the NRA is really the only uh, pro gun group that is, spending significant amounts of money in this election right and that's that's pretty much always the case this is something we, we we've gone back and talked about this in the past of how a lot of people write off the nra because of the corruption issues and uh or they don't like their policy positions or whatever and they think they don't matter anymore but they really do still matter quite a lot yeah uh, on the the program side of things they're really the only ones spending big money in elections you know nssf the the industry's trade group, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, they spend money, but they've, they've raised about $800,000 this cycle, whereas the NRA is at $17 million. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a, a good idea. And NSSF is really this, the next biggest group on the program side. But anyway, uh, so you're seeing uh, some differences in strategy, though, between the pro-gun side and the pro-gun control side, where the gun control groups, as we talked about last week, have sort of expanded out their message and the kinds of races that they're spending money in. Uh, so it, to really go into areas that aren't even gun related necessarily, those state secretary races we talked about last time uh, have really nothing to do with gun policy in particular. And they also have expanded their messaging to include in a lot of cases, abortion, which, uh, you know, they argue is connected to guns, uh in some way but it's really just it's sort of this intersectional approach to the campaign season whereas the nra has stayed much more focused on gun policy they have incorporated a crime message 
into a lot of their ads. Uh, they've been doing that for a long time, right? Uh, although usually it's it's more directly related to gun ownership. You know, talking about how people c- could be a victim of crimes if they don't aren't armed. Uh, whereas this, I think this election, it's a, a little bit more on the problem of crime generally. Mm-hmm. And then combining that with guns, so it's a little bit less connected directly. I, you know, people people should judge for themselves. You should go watch. There's, you can watch the ads. We have them. We have quotes from the ads in our in our piece on this. So I don't want to prejudge anyone in that regard. So you can you can watch them yourself. Here's a quote from one. This is in in the Senate race in Pennsylvania. Uh, the NRA ad uh, goes quote. A man brutally killed in downtown Pittsburgh, stabbed to death with gardening shears, his murderer convicted to a life sentence until John John Fetterman voted to set him free. Fetterman then waited to, or then wanted to release nearly 1,200 murderers. Uh, And then it turns to guns and says, quote, Fetterman wants to take away your fundamental right to defend yourself and your family while opening jail cells for violent criminals. Afraided by the NRA, Fetterman supports unconstitutional red flag gun confiscation laws and banning the most common semi-automatic firearms and magazines in Pennsylvania. That's why Pennsylvania gun owners support Dr. Oz. So so there's an example of an ad and how they approach the crime and guns issue uh, and how they connect them. But that's pretty typical for a lot of their other ads as well. We, We have a bunch of them quoted here. A lot of them haven't been reported on elsewhere. But so if you want to see what the NRA is is doing in these races and where they're spending money and what their message is, uh, you should head over and check out some of these ads directly. Yeah. And and another point in the article, which I thought was almost as important, if not more important than this sort of temporal issue of this campaign ad funding is, is, and I think, I think Jake wrote this one. Yeah. Jake, Jake Fogelman wrote this article. And Mm -hmm. I think he talks about um, the idea of the, influence and the sway the NRA will have moving forward. And this is kind of maybe a bit of a litmus test. Is that, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that's one of the takeaways from this election cycle is, you know, the NRA is going through all these struggles. It's still got the court case in New York that could see its leadership get tossed out of the organization over the corruption charges. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of talk as, as I alluded to earlier in the, in our conversation here, about the influence of the NRA and how important it is. And if they want to maintain that level of influence they've had in previous decades, they're going to have to show people that they can still influence elections, that they can still spend money and get candidates elected or or defeat uh, their opponents. So how this election turns out, how these races are perceived to have been affected by the NRA's efforts will matter a lot for the organization going forward, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it's high stakes for them. They have to perform well in this election or it's another negative mark in a series that's happened over the last several years. Yeah, you know, I, I've gotten some comments, offline comments of people that uh, have listened to the podcast and to this segment. And I think people get the impression that we're just here throwing, th- hurling stones at the NRA all the time. Well, the fact is, uh, as we alluded to earlier, if the NRA goes away, if the NRA uh, ceases to be as influential and, and large as it is, that's a real problem for the supporters of the Second Amendment because there's no other organization that c- goes anywhere near uh, its size or its influence and its history. So we we don't want the NRA to fail. We would like to see some changes, especially at the top of the NRA. Um, and we we talked about that in previous episodes, how hard it is to end up in the position where you could become 
uh, the next Wayne LaPierre uh, is, well, it's almost impossible, right? Yeah, I mean, look, this is just about talking about the reality of the where the, where the NRA is at. I don't think it helps anyone to sugarcoat this stuff right. or to pretend like it's not happening or to pretend like the NRA is doing great right now because they're not. And, uh, you know, so this is an important test for them. At the same time, I don't think it's sensible to go out and pretend that they are completely, you know, lost and, and have no influence or don't matter or wouldn't or wouldn't matter if they went away tomorrow. Like none of that is true either. Right. The organization is still by far the largest in the country dealing with guns by any measure. And, you know, as much as the you can uh, look at some of the other pro-gun groups and say they've grown or they their their influence has increased and they're you know there's all these attempts to fill this vacuum created by the shrinking of the NRA none of them come close to matching the size or funding or influence of the NRA it's just the the, the NRA has its fingers in every level of guns uh, policy across this country whether it's the legal front the uh, political front training uh, or the training front. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. Like the NRA is, uh, is not something you're going to be able to replace tomorrow if it goes away, it, you know? And I think that honestly, more often is, is what I hear from uh, gun rights a- activists. You know, there's a difference between of course, activists and just your regular gun owner. Mm-hmm. But uh, more often I'm hearing that basically an apathy about the NRA situation they're in you know we, we talked about i believe their um their convention that they held in texas earlier this year mm-hmm. and how you know it was the smallest one since 2006 and the, you know there were only like 500 people voted in the 76 board member election and it's all these all these negative things that came out of that conference for them negative headlines negative facts but at the same time, no other gun group on this planet could put could even hope to put together a convention like that. That's the that's the reality of the situation with the NRA. It's like it's you're seeing this shrinking, you're seeing the finances struggle, you're seeing, and this is true for the political spending as well. It's it's down compared to previous years. It just is. I mean, they spent nearly fifty million dollars in twenty sixteen. Now that was presidential elections. So, this is a midterm. It's a little different, although the 2020, their spending was way down, like half of what it was in, in 2016. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, it's shrinking on this front, too. But it's, again, as I mentioned, still way more than anyone else out there on the program side and still more than the gun control side put together at this point. Yeah, folks, if you want more on this, go head over to the reload.com. The article is by Jake Fogelman, and it is uh, it's really well well written, and it is chock full of I think pull quotes from all these various ads so you can kind of go to that one spot and see what everyone's saying in all these different races or see what the NRA is saying about these different races. And do me a favor, go over to thereload.com and carefully consider getting a membership. I got to tell you, folks, I, I stopped watching the regular news a while ago because I couldn't take it anymore just for my, for my own mental health. Uh, so I, the only news I get about, about the gun issues comes from the reload, and I feel like I'm getting stuff that probably you're not getting anywhere else. So Stephen needs your membership dollars to continue his important work. Head over there to thereload.com. Check it out. Consider getting a membership. We appreciate it. And uh, Stephen, we appreciate you coming on every week, and uh, we'll see you next week, my friend. Absolutely.
Hey friends, this is John Correa. If you like the podcast, if it is bringing you value, do me a favor and leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. 